0: Hello and welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different than the rest. In the last episode, I discussed the Praetorian Guard and their centuries of disabling secret shenanigans that trampled on individual liberty in the Roman Empire. I've got to apologize for the month-long hiatus. Maria and I have had some big events happening in our personal lives and haven't had the time to get an episode out. Until now. Today I want to begin a series of episodes on one of Rome's most famous and influential citizens, Saul of Tarsus, now known as Saint Paul. Arguably, his writings, contained in the New Testament, are some of the most impactful documents in Western civilization. For weeks, we've been setting the stage for this episode. By understanding Paul, you'll understand the New Testament better, and we will be ready to shift gears into studying the Christian successors of the Romans, the Byzantines, as well as the Papal States, the Crusader kingdoms, and beyond. The Christianization of Rome largely begins with the contributions of Paul, who was the first missionary to the Gentiles. This episode pairs nicely with episode 22, Flavius Josephus and the Siege of Jerusalem. I think you'll find Paul and Josephus have a surprising amount in common, Stoic Pharisees whose writings about Jewish history and scripture were primarily for Roman audiences and changed the world. How can an instrument dedicated to destruction bring about salvation? How can a wicked, wrathful man become a new creature, born of God, changed from his carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness being redeemed? Through studying the life of Paul today, You'll find the answer to these and many other questions. Paul's given name was Saul. He was born in Tarsus, a Roman city in Cilicia, the southeastern edge of modern-day Turkey. Cilicia was known for its goat herds and goat hair textiles. Saul was born a Roman citizen, thus affording him the legal opportunities that came with that. This included protections against cruel and unusual punishment, and a right to a legal trial. These two privileges would play major roles in Saul's later life, as he would leverage them to avoid imprisonment and execution several times, as well as use them to gain audiences with the highest Roman officials in the lands he visited, including the emperor himself, Caesar Nero. In Tarsus, Saul was likely raised by tent makers, who passed on to him that trade. He also managed to pick up fluency in the three major languages of that time, Greek, Latin, and Aramaic. Saul's parents raised him up in their faith, Judaism. This faith would drive Saul to move to Jerusalem, where he would eventually join the sect of Pharisees. There, he would learn at the feet of the greatest religious scholar of his day, Gamaliel, who was the grandson of Hillel. A few years later, sometime between AD 31 and 36, when Saul was likely in his late 20s, he started running with a bad crowd of Hellenized Jews. These were Jews who had abandoned much of their faith to fit in more easily with their Greek neighbors. Much of this sect of the Sadducees was Hellenized. The Sadducees were Levites and descendants of Sadoc, the great priest of Solomon's day. They were in charge of overseeing the running of the temple. Through their dealings with the Romans, they had grown very wealthy and powerful in the city of Jerusalem, and they wholeheartedly rejected key doctrines fundamental to Christianity, such as the resurrection, and of course, they rejected our Lord Jesus Christ. It was the Sadducees who began a campaign of jailing and murdering the small but rapidly growing faith of Christians. Saul was not only complicit in their actions, he was directly involved. Quote, Indeed, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is what I did in Jerusalem, with authority received from the chief priests. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but I also cast my vote against them when they were being condemned to death. By punishing them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And since I was so furiously enraged at them, I pursued them, even to foreign cities. In Jewish law, there were only a couple crimes you could stone people for, And to do so, you needed multiple witnesses in a court hearing to establish the guilt of the accused. Paul admits here that, in this point of his life, he was so convinced of the evilness of the Christians and so enraged with them that he was willing to participate in false trials that he knew were wrong in order to save Judaism from these blasphemers. The means really justified the ends to him. One of the Christians that Saul pursued was Stephen, a Christian deacon who had been preaching to the people in Jerusalem. Stephen had been recently set apart by the Christian apostles to oversee the feeding of the Greek widows who had joined the Christian community. One day, other Jews who were also from Cilicia stood up and argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. This upset the elders and scribes, who seized Stephen and dragged him before the council of priests. Stephen rebuked the priests and laid bare their wickedness in a sermon that comprises the entirety of Acts chapter 7. Now, when the priests had heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But Stephen gazed steadfastly into heaven and shouted, Look! I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But his accusers covered their ears, and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city. Taking him to the place of stoning, they laid down their cloaks at the feet of Saul. Then they hurled stones at Stephen until he was dead. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it reads, And Saul approved of their killing him. Driven by hate, Saul continued his dogged pursuit of the Christians. Acts 9, 1-3 reads, Meanwhile Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. It was on this road to Damascus that Paul was interrupted by a most unexpected visitor. Saul, Saul! Why persecutest thou me? The mysterious visitor asked, illuminated by light from heaven. Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It was at that moment Paul realized he was in the fight against the forces of darkness, but he was on the wrong side. Not because he was a Jew or a Pharisee, but because he was willing to twist Jewish law to satisfy his anger and arrest and execute innocent people just because he disagreed with them. The light of the heavenly vision struck Saul with blindness for three days, and his traveling companions led the unseeing Saul to a Christian disciple in Damascus named Ananias. Ananias, at first fearing Saul, took a leap of faith and blessed Saul instead. He calls Paul his brother, and just like the bishop in Les Miserables, who had great reason to fear the thief who broke into his home, Ananias responded responded to the dangerous criminal with love and healing, and he broke the circle of violence that Saul was perpetuating. In that very hour, Saul's vision was healed. He immediately went up to the synagogue to declare what he had seen and give his witness of Jesus. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked his name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? After some weeks of preaching in Damascus with the other disciples, Saul developed a new infamous reputation, but now as an unstoppable Christian force. The Jews in the city began to plot how they could kill him. They decided to lay traps for him at the gates so that if he ever exited, the city assassins would spring on him and kill him. Paul managed to escape the city with the help of his new Christian friends. They lowered him off the walls in a basket. Saul then returned to Jerusalem, but when he attempted to join the disciples there, they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was truly a disciple. But Barnabas, who had heard Saul's story, decided to act in faith and not fear. Instead, he saw the potential of this new convert and so it was Barnabas who introduced Saul to the apostles and began taking Saul to go out preaching with him. While they were praying at the temple together one day, the voice of the Lord came to Saul, loud and clear, and he told him that the people of Jerusalem would reject his testimony. The Lord then encouraged Saul to go out and teach the Gentiles. Sure enough, like clockwork, the Hellenists of Jerusalem, no doubt extra upset by the betrayal of their former minion, began plotting how they would kill Saul. When the disciples got wind of this, they snuck Saul off to Caesarea where they put him on a ship and sent him back home to Tarsus, probably to go and teach and convert his family and friends. About a decade later, in AD 44 or 45 or 46, Paul and Barnabas had moved to Antioch, Syria. It's this time when the Spirit prompts the church leadership in Antioch to ordain Saul and Barnabas, and send them off on a mission. They travel with John Mark, who is Barnabas's cousin, and who in about 10 years from now would write the first gospel, the Gospel of Mark. The missionaries first sailed to Cyprus, where Barnabas was from. Cyprus is a big ol' island south of modern-day Turkey. The missionaries arrived at Salamis, the chief city and port of Cyprus. As would become Saul's custom. They began teaching in the synagogue. Cyprus had a large Jewish population, and so there was an extensive teaching pool for Saul and Barnabas to draw from. Saul, being a Pharisee and disciple of Gamaliel, had access to preach in any synagogue he wanted, and he drew in big crowds. Their words made quite a stir on the island. In no time, they were summoned to meet with Sergius Paulus, the leading Roman official of Cyprus, and his Jewish advisor, Bar-Jesus. They, the missionaries, they had to cross the island by foot to get to the Roman capital of the island, Paphos. This is where Sergius Paulus lived. Sergius enthusiastically received the gospel, but Bar-Jesus advised him against joining the church. Saul called out Bar-Jesus and his meddling and cast a temporary curse of blindness on him. This cemented Sergius's belief in Christ, and it foreshadowed Saul's future success with Gentile converts. Crazily enough, Sergius Paulus was the only recorded convert on the entire island. I'm not sure if this means they had no success there, or if the author of Acts, Luke, just forgot to mention any baptisms. Whatever the reason, Barnabas and Mark do eventually go back there, so I assume that it must have had some moderate success. Anyway, it's after their jaunt in Cyprus where Saul is called Paul for the first time. And this is his name for the rest of the book of Acts. So why the sudden shift in names? Is it because of Sergius Paulus's kindness to him that Paul felt like taking his name? Or was Saul and Paul both part of Paul's name already, but since Paul pivoted from teaching Jews to teaching Romans here, he decided to go by his Roman name from now on? Or is this because Luke, the author of Acts, wanted to show the dichotomy between Saul, which is a Jewish name for a king who fell from grace, and Paul, who was a Gentile who eagerly became a Christian? Or maybe this was a mixture of all three answers. Either way, the newly minted Paul takes the team back to the mainland to the port of Perga. It is in Perga that Mark abruptly abandons Paul and Barnabas. This infuriates Paul, who holds a grudge against Mark for several years, and this leads to an eventual falling out with Barnabas. Mark headed to Jerusalem, while Barnabas and Paul headed to Antioch, which is in modern day Turkey. This is not to be confused with the Antioch in Syria where they started. In Antioch, one of their first acts is, you guessed it, to teach at the synagogue. After the rabbi reads excerpts from the law and the prophets, he asks Paul and Barnabas if they'd like to share a few words. And boy, do they. You give them an inch and they take a mile. Paul gave a whole synopsis of the history of Israel and how it all led up to Jesus Christ. And the sermon blew the socks off of everyone in attendance. In attendance were many Jews, but also a group called God-fearers. What's a God-fearer? God-fearers is a code word for Gentile worshippers of Jehovah who attend synagogue but are not fully Jewish. This was typically because they didn't want to get their you-know-what circumcised. Now, the sermon here proved to be such a hit that by the next week, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. At this sermon, Paul speaks of how he's been called specifically to teach the Gentiles, and the God-fearers of Antioch rejoice, realizing the time where they will finally be in full fellowship is at hand. Unfortunately, the Jewish leaders of the city did not approve of this message. They grew very jealous of the large crowds gathering to hear Paul and Barnabas, and so they pulled some strings with their buddies in high-ranking positions across the city, and these leaders were able to stir up enough hate towards Paul and Barnabas that the two missionaries had to flee not just the city, but the entire region. The missionaries headed east to Lyconia, to a city called Iconium, where they faced similar success and persecutions as well. After the citizens attempted to stone them, they decided to go south to Lystra. In Lystra, Paul healed a cripple who had been lame since birth. Now, the Gentile crowd that had witnessed this miracle got very excited and they started losing their minds. They shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul, they called Hermes because he was the more talkative one. Immediately, the priest of Zeus was sent for in his temple outside the city. He proudly marched through the city streets with sacrificial oxen and garlands in tow. When Paul got wind that the priest was planning on making an offering to him, he shouted, Friends, why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God. So what's the answer here? Why did these Gentiles seem so ready to worship gods coming down in human form? Well, there was a myth about this very occurrence. In Ovid's Metamorphoses, written two centuries earlier, it tells of an old married couple, Baucis and Philemon. Zeus and Hermes came to their rustic cottage, asking for a place to spend the night. The couple allowed them to come in and shared their food and wine with them. Now the two peasants revealed that they were actually gods, but because Baucis and Philemon were the only people in the town kind enough to let them in, the gods would spare these two from the destruction that awaited the town. Now these Greeks, they thought this story was happening all over again, and they did not want to be accused of being inhospitable to the gods. So now you can see why, even with these words, Paul and Barnabas scarcely restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Despite their popularity in Lystra being celebrated as gods, this didn't translate into much success. The Jewish leaders from Iconium and Antioch soon caught up to them, and they convinced the Jews of the city to attack Paul. They stoned him, and they dragged him out of the city. Paul was left presumed dead. The disciples mourned the loss of their brother, an ironic fate after he himself had set in motion the stoning of Stephen. But then something truly miraculous happened. Paul arose as if from the dead and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas headed east for Derby. Seemingly, he was unscathed from the execution attempt. In Derbe, the two missionaries ordained elders to lead each church congregation, and with that, their mission was about wrapped up. They headed back towards the port in Perga, and they spoke at some congregations along the way. They then chartered a ship and headed back home to Antioch in Syria. With this, their first mission was wrapped up. They stayed with the disciples in Antioch for three years. During this time, which was about the late 40s, Paul wasn't just resting in Antioch. Paul began writing his epistles. These are letters that he would periodically send to check up on the congregations he had established, clear up doctrinal questions, and greet converts and leaders that he had befriended during his mission. The first epistle he wrote was Thessalonians, and about 15 years later he would write his last epistle, Second Timothy. Paul actually wrote 14 of the 27 epistles that appear in the New Testament, and there were many other epistles that we would have had, but they didn't survive the first century. We only know about them because Paul references them in his other epistles. We're apparently missing a first epistle to the Corinthians, a first epistle to the Ephesians, and an epistle to the Laodicians. We can assume that there were others as well. Paul also spent these three years in Antioch proclaiming the gospel, running the church, and standing up for his Gentile converts, these God-fearers. But these Gentile converts were getting a lot of heat from some Pharisee converts who had come up from Judea to preach to them. These Pharisees proclaimed to the congregation at Antioch, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Now this infuriated Paul and caused much contention in the church. The apostles in Jerusalem finally decided to meet together to settle, settle the matter, and they invited Paul and Barnabas to testify as well. During the meeting, Peter declared, and God, who knows the human heart, testified to the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So here Peter states that it is by the grace of the Lord that Gentiles can be saved, not by following every rule laid out in the Law of Moses. Still, this didn't sit right with everyone, and so James the Apostle laid out a compromise. Instead of following circumcision and every other kosher restriction, James said, I've reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornications and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. So, what is this compromise talking about? The first part of it is to abstain from things polluted by idols. This referred to the Greco-Roman tradition of offering meat to their pagan gods before they would eat it. And so this meant that Gentiles could not buy or eat meat that had previously been offered to idols. This standard became very difficult to follow since essentially all meat was offered to idols by default. And so Paul recommended an easier version in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven 27-28, essentially telling the Gentiles to not worry about this unless you know for a fact that it has explicitly been offered to an idol. Now by extension, this rule also banished all other forms of idolatry as well. The second part of the compromise was for Gentiles not to commit sexual sin. And the third part of the compromise was to abstain from whatever has been strangled. And so this is once again talking about butchery practices In the Mosaic law, kosher meat comes from animals who've had their throats slit as opposed to strangling. Slicing the throat is the more humane practice. The Gentiles in Antioch, when they received news of the Jerusalem decision, rejoiced. And it may have been this rejoicing that convinced Paul that maybe it was time to head out on a second mission. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today, but tune in next week. I will be discussing the second mission of Paul, along with other parts of his teachings and writings in the New Testament. But that concludes our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and share us with a friend. For more information on this topic, check out the New Oxford Annotated Bible Commentary for Acts chapters 6 to 15. I'm Doug Archway, and that's history for you.